Thanks, Kate. Worship team. Good morning, church. It's good to see you all here. Uh, as you've already heard, we're going to be in the book of Jonah. We are uh, stepping into a series where we're going to walk through the book of Jonah uh, over the course of five weeks or four chapters. So we'll hit chapter one today and then next week we'll take a break for Mother's Day and then we'll come back and spend three more weeks in the book of Jonah uh, together. And what's interesting about the book of Jonah for me personally is that um, about 10 years ago, 2012, I was working through a seminary program and uh, the pre- professor made this comment about the book of Jonah, and he said this to a bunch of would-be uh, pastors, preachers, like, hey guys, unless you can preach Jesus from the book of Jonah, you're not ready to preach it. And so 10 years later, here we are. I finally feel like I can preach it. Um, so that's, that's where we're headed together. Um, I know somebody wanted to cheer, like, finally, yeah, you figured out how to read the Bible. Yeah, no, um, I've had a lot of hesitation around the book itself, because I think um, partially because of how we all learn about the book of Jonah, right? Like we, we learn about it in like maybe kids' church, and it's, it's, it comes to us as some sort of a fable um, about a big fish and this guy named Jonah, and we get it mixed up with stories like Moby Dick and all these other childhood fable stories, and we fail to realize that this story of Jonah is actually a legit real story that happened, and that's how the Bible presents it to us. And the other part about this is that it's ultimately not a story about Jonah, and it's not a story about a big fish. It's a story about a big God. And so we're going to learn this together as we go through the book of Jonah. And what I hope for all of us, starting today, is that you and I will see our place in the story. How much you and I are really like Jonah. And through this, that we would see not only how big God is and see his sovereignty and his power, but you would see the book of Jonah is this beautiful expression of God's kindness his mercy, and his graciousness. And so we're going to get started here in verse 1 together. Uh, If you have your Bibles and want to read with, feel free to do that. If you don't own a Bible, we put Bibles under the seats around you. Feel free to grab one of those and take it home as our gift to you. Uh, Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now along the way in the series we will learn a lot about Jonah and what's going on. Um, in uh, Israel and what's going on in the context of human history but just some side notes to be aware of first of all uh, this is not Jonah's initial call to be a prophet Uh, second Kings chapter 14 tells us that Jonah actually had already been um, prophesying in the nation of Israel and God had used Jonah in a really unique way for the nation of Israel he had prophesied um, that God would expand the borders of Israel and restore borders for Israel. And so, um, a lot, uh, unlike a lot of the other prophets uh, for Israel, Jonah came with a positive word for the people of Israel. And then when it came to pass, as you can imagine, Jonah was a pretty popular guy. And we like the prophet Jonah. He's a whole lot better than these prophets who come and and give us a prophecy about judgment or damnation or punishment or correction. Jonah, we like Jonah. 
And so Jonah was really kind of somewhat of a a famous or a likable prophet for the nation of Israel. But not only that, simultaneously what was happening just across the way, just across the eastern border in Assyria, was that Assyria had risen to power and was also becoming known. And they were becoming known as a ferocious terrorist nation that inflicted wicked brutality on anyone who opposed them. And so this word of the Lord coming to Jonah is not the first invitation from God to Jonah to go prophesy, but what he's calling Jonah to do uh, is going to cut against the grain of his popularity, right, as, as God's calling him to go to this foreign nation of terrorists and that his own life might be in jeopardy. Uh, Tim Keller uh, compares this moment in Jonah's life to a Jewish rabbi in 1941 being called by God to go to the streets of Berlin and call the nation of Germany to repentance like to obey God in this moment would mean that he would give up his notoriety um, his likability for the nation of Israel because he's going to this foreign country but that it would put his very life in jeopardy I think it's a fair comparison to try to understand what's going on in the heart and the mind of Jonah But Jonah, rather than obeying God, rather than thinking about it, immediately disobeys God and goes the opposite direction. God calls Jonah to rise up and go to Nineveh, and instead Jonah rises up and goes the opposite direction. So he's not even trying to walk the tightrope of tension between God's uh, calling him to do something in his own comfort and his own kind of protection for himself he's not even trying to pretend like he's obeying God I'm going the other way and we see here is not only does he run the other way but he's willing to pay the fare for it now in practical terms that means he's willing to pay for his ticket but ultimately whatever it takes to get away from the presence of God Jonah is willing to pay that price that's going to cost him more than just money It's going to end up costing him more than just his comfort, as we'll see together as Jonah runs. Now, I want to unpack this a little bit for us now. Um, First of all, when we can see Jonah now just like immediately running in disobedience, knowing the backstory, it's a little easier for me to empathize with Jonah, if we're going to be honest, like, yeah, it's, like it's, it's one thing to like say, you know what, I'm a prophet for the nation of Israel, and that's hard work because i got to go say bad news to people and share, share what God's going to do. But it's a whole other thing when God says, hey, now I want you to go to a foreign country where there is rampant wickedness and destruction and terrorism and brutality. And oh, I want you to go call them to repentance. So I can empathize with Jonah saying, well, I want to think about this for just a minute. Like, how is is this going to work? But what Jonah does is he immediately disobeys God. And what we see so clearly is that shame begins to write his story. In the same way we saw in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and immediately shame began to write their story. What do we mean by that? Immediately, Adam looks at Eve and Eve looks at Adam and they don't trust each other anymore. Why? Because shame was writing the story. 
And immediately they begin to conspire and, and say to one another, we need to hide not just from each other, we need to hide from God. What if he shows up today like he showed up yesterday? What will he do with us? How mad is he going to be at us? And so shame began to write their story, and they hid from each other, and they hid from God. And now we can see that unfolding for Jonah so clearly, can't we? He's not running from the nation of Israel. He's not running from the office of prophet. He's not running from the concept of who God is. He's running from the presence of God. What if God shows up and finds out I didn't do what he called me to go do? And so what Jonah is running from is the presence of God. And we can see shame writing his story. What happens when shame starts to write our story? First thing we do is we move away from God's presence. Whatever that means for you, stop going to church. Stop spending time with people who spend time in the presence of God. I, I quit spending time in the presence of God myself. I don't pray anymore. I don't read his word because what happens if he shows up? What will he do with me if he shows up? So I don't want to be in his presence. So we move away from the presence of God and then we begin to seek refuge in places, in spaces, in relationships where we can hide. Where people don't know what's going on inside. They don't ask about what's going on on the inside. We gravitate towards other people who are running from God and it's kind of like this unspoken rule I won't ask you about yours you don't ask me about mine we see this playing out for Jonah as he runs from the presence of God going to a foreign nation with pagan sailors as we'll see here he wants to be as far away from God's presence as possible and shame starts to write our story we move away from God's presence and we seek spaces places and relationships where we can be not fully known. We gravitate towards other people who are running from God. We begin to choose mechanisms of self-comfort. We self-medicate that feeling of shame. Like, nobody likes shame. It's uncomfortable. It feels hopeless. And so we begin to reach out for how can I make myself feel better? I'm going to run away from the things that make me feel this shame, and then that doesn't work. I still feel it. It followed me wherever, I, wherever I'm at, and so I'm going to reach out for things that can bring some sense of like solitude and, and peacefulness inside. We reach out for desperate things, don't we? Things that numb the pain for just a moment. And what ends up happening is that we begin adding shame to shame in our shame, in our running from God, in our discomfort of, of we might be found out, we reach for things that bring momentary comfort and in the end they do what? They add more shame. And then shame, stacked on top of shame, like links in a chain, begin to shackle us. Church, this is where addictions come from. Addictions don't apply to like 1% of humanity, those who are born with an addictive gene. Addiction is what happens when shame stacks on top of shame. 
And sometimes addiction is obvious and it, and it rears its ugly head and substance abuse and drugs and alcohol and sexual addictions, sometimes it rears its ugly head masquerading as something good, career, work. Things that momentarily quiet down the voice of shame until everybody leaves and we're left by ourselves and then that voice comes back. This is what happened when shame writes the story. We better understand what Jonah's, what's going on in Jonah's heart. He's running away from the presence of God. How can I take this situation into my own hands? How can I regain control which we'll talk a little bit about this morning. You know that, that control is a fallacy, right? Some of you are like, nope, not in my life. I got it under control. Until you don't, right? Until you don't. I mean, if we've learned anything from parenting, <laughs> right? Ultimately, they're not under our control. Maybe under our influence, but not our control. You don't control your career, your job path. You can't control your spouse. Oh, finally, somebody said it. I've been trying so hard. I know, but you can't. Yet we often operate in this illusion of control, finding some sense of false security or comfort in thinking I've, I've got life handled. A good way to know when somebody's bumping up against your fallacy of control is when you get angry. Stop messing with it. Whether it's your kids, your boss, something. Stop. I just got this thing under control and now you're messing with it. And we see Jonah like quickly trying to take matters into his own hands. The author is telling us that he was willing to pay the fare, anything he could do to regain this illusion of control over his life as he's running away from the presence of God, fueled by shame. Now, verse four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, remember Jonah had gone down into the ship. Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship. And he had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The first thing I want us to see here as we think about sin and disobeying God is this really important principle. Your sin always impacts others. One of the lies regarding sin is that this only impacts me. I'll, I'll get my life back on track with God later. But for now, I'm choosing this path that I clearly know is disobedience. But it's okay, because it only impacts me. 
your sin never only impacts you. If you're living in a household where you're hiding something and you're thinking, it's okay, it's just me, nobody else knows. Like your, your other household members, your family may not know exactly what's going on, but they're not getting all of you. They're getting the you that's being fueled by shame and hiding. Sometimes our sin explicitly, overtly impacts people around us, and it's easy to see. Sometimes it's more covert. Sometimes it's more indirect. But if we're learning any lessons from Jonah in just three or four or five verses, it's that his disobedience, now think about this. God could have come to Jonah at any point in this journey. He could have cornered Jonah when he was by himself and like had a burning bush moment with Jonah. But he waited. And now Jonah's sin is not just impacting himself as he runs from God. Now it's impacting these, these sailors. And if nobody ever reverses course here and goes to Nineveh, it's going to impact them too. So the first principle i want to point out here is that our sin always impacts others it always does now here's the second thing i want to point out oftentimes when we read a story like this or we go through a story like this when the storm comes we misinterpret the storm as god's anger oh god's he's mad now could I offer up another explanation here? This storm that has everybody freaked out and scared in a place of extreme desperation is actually an expression of God's kindness. Just think about this for a minute. Who is God being kind to here? We'll start with Jonah. I would argue that the best place for Jonah to be, the best life he could live on earth is a life of obedience to God. Even if God calls him to go to Nineveh, the best place for him to be would be to, to take that path obediently and to trust God with whatever happens. And so I would argue that it is a kind thing for God to use whatever he chooses to use to stop Jonah in his tracks and to reverse course. So God causes a tempest to rise up on the sea in his kindness towards Jonah. What about the sailors? Do you notice how the sailors, these pagan sailors, are actually closer to repentance than Jonah is? Like, the author of Jonah goes to great lengths to help us see their desperation. Like, these are sailors out on the open sea. They've already cried out to every god that they can think of. Now there's nothing left to do. The only option they have left is to throw cargo overboard, which means what? They're abandoning their mission at this point. Because wasn't that the point of the, the journey to begin with? Get cargo from A to B. When you get to the point where you're like, hey, we're throwing everything overboard, the only mission left is stay alive. Right? That's the desperation 
of where they are. And the wrong interpretation would be to look at that and go, look at how angry and mad God is. Man. And yet these sailors are so close to to calling out to God, so close to repentance. And for God to let Jonah run and not intervene would actually be unkind to these sailors. They're about to witness the powerful hand of a merciful God. They are about to encounter the one true God. And so this tempest that that God causes to happen in verse 4 is actually an expression of his kindness to these sailors. How about the Ninevites? What happens if the prophet doesn't go? What happens if nobody follows God's command and goes to Nineveh and, and calls them to repentance? And so we begin to see that this tempest that rises up in verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea in his kindness. But it doesn't feel like that in real time, does it? When we walk through some type of trial or tribulation, our first response is, why are you mad at me, God? Why are you, why are you pouring out your anger on me? I'm going through this difficult, desperate situation. I'm about to start throwing things overboard, God. And we fail to see that the storm itself is an expression of God's kindness. And so God in his kindness causes this storm to rise. He stops Jonah from running. He captures the attention of these pagan sailors who don't even know who to call out to. And now... They're coming to Jonah saying, call out to your God. See if he might help us. And ultimately, if you know the end of the story, Jonah's going to Nineveh. We see this as God's kindness. Now, what I want to do next is we're going to go to Matthew 12. When Jesus teaches um, his disciples the Old Testament, um, he, he, he does this thing where he shows whoever's listening, oftentimes his disciples, he shows them how the Old Testament points to him. Like, he'll teach through a scroll of Isaiah, or he'll teach through the Psalms, and, and ultimately in Luke 24, after the resurrection, he sits down with them, and he walks through the Old Testament with them, and he shows them how the Old Testament really points towards him. All the commands of God, all the laws of God, all the prophecies of God are pointing forward to Jesus. So he actually says something in Matthew 12 that I want to look at with you about Jonah. Now, starting in verse 38, Jesus is going to be speaking to a group of religious individuals, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the who's who um, among the religious of this day and time. From the commoner's perspective, these guys were like super spiritual, like perfectly moral. They had wisdom and knowledge because they knew the Old Testament and had it memorized. These were the who's who among righteous and spiritual people. And what we see is so many times they come to Jesus and they ask him questions 
and we see that their motive is to trap him or to knock him off course, and he sees right through it. That's what's about to happen. So in verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, this is to Jesus, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, you can almost kind of read between the lines where they're saying, hey, if you'll just kind of show us a sign and prove yourself to us, we'll be in. But that's really not what they want. They really want Jesus to shut up and sit down. They really want Jesus to go back where he came from. They really want Jesus off of center stage um, among the people of Israel. That's what they want. So they come down, hey, what, can you just show us a sign? And look at how Jesus responds. But he answered them, to an evil and adulterous generation, or excuse me, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Can, Can we just put that in context? Jesus just compared the scribes and Pharisees to the Assyrians. What was Jonah's sign? To go to the Assyrians in Nineveh and call them to repentance. And Jesus said, you want a sign? I've got a sign for you. I've actually come to bring you a sign. But listen, it's the sign of Jonah. It's the sign of calling a wicked and adulterous generation to repentance. Here's your sign. Verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus is telling us that if we'll look at Jonah, we're going to see a reflection of him. And then look at what he goes on to say. Verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. That's good news. So whatever God did in Nineveh among the generation that are going to hear this call from Jonah to repent, evidently they responded to it. And Jesus is like, hey, at the resurrection, we're going to see people from Nineveh. And then look at what he says. Not only will they rise up at the judgment with this generation, what are they going to do? They're going to condemn it. So I'm bringing you the same sign that Jonah brought the men in Nineveh. Here's the difference. They're going to rise up at the resurrection. And when they look at you, they're going to look at you with condemnation. That's harsh. Why? And he tells us why. Here's why. They, They heard the sign. They received the prophecy. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And what Jesus is saying is, I've come as a better Jonah. And if you look at the story of Jonah, you're going to see a foreshadowing of me. Jonah came as a prophet, the first prophet of the people of God, dispatched to go to the Gentiles and to call them to repentance. Do you know that? Jonah's the first one. Jesus comes, bringing the sign of Jonah, calling not just the nation of Israel, but the Gentiles to repentance. kind of walk through some of these signs that we're going to see in the story of Jonah. I'll give you a few of them here. 
Jesus and Jonah both faced like personal harm and even death for delivering the message that God gave them to deliver. Both brought a message of repentance to the Gentiles. Jonah faced persecution and even possible execution from the Assyrians and Jesus faced persecution and execution from his own people. Jonah's got a storm and a fish. The story of Jesus has a cross and a grave. The difference is the storm and the fish are a result of Jonah's disobedience while the cross and the grave are a testimony to Jesus' obedience. Jonah will be in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus in the tomb for three days. Jonah will come close to death for his sin. Jesus will go all the way to death for the sins of many. Jonah didn't go willingly into the belly of the fish, yet Jesus is going to walk willingly to the cross and to the grave. And while Jonah, in the end, will begrudgingly obey God, and, and, and if you're looking for this story to resolve, it doesn't resolve. Even when we get to the end and he's done what God called him to do, he's still not going to be okay. He's still going to be wrestling with God over some stuff. I mean, he's, he's begrudgingly obeying God all the way to the end, yet Jesus joyfully and willingly submits to the cross. And so what Jesus is saying here to the scribes and Pharisees, I have come as a better Jonah. And the sign is a sign of a call for the wicked and adulterous generation to repentance. What I want to do now is, is just take a minute to, to think about how much like Jonah you and I are. I think the story can be so big, so miraculous that maybe we have a hard time relating. Like, I don't know when the last time was that you got swallowed by a big fish and got vomited up on the seashore, but hasn't happened to me lately. And so the temptation is to look at the big picture of the story and go, well, that's just about Jonah. That's just about God. Has nothing to do with me. And yet, you and I are so much like Jonah. Jonah disobeys God to protect his own comfort. Does that sound familiar? God called you to do something and it was going to cost you. It was going to be uncomfortable, maybe even risky. And you said no. I think like Jonah, far too often we find ourselves trusting in our own plan that seems controllable rather than trusting the plan that God has for us. Anybody relate to that? I like the one that's manageable. <laughs> I like the one that seems to me is predictable until it's not. I like the one that counts on me to make sure everybody is safe and happy. And you see how inadvertently what we're saying is, I don't trust God. Like, I can relate to Jonah's fear, but ultimately the testimony of him running is saying, I don't trust that God is kind. I don't trust that God is safe and secure. I don't trust that God is sovereign. 
I only trust who? Myself. How many of us, far too often, trust in our own plan that seems controllable? And what does this reveal about your view of God? You see, here's, here's where we're at. I think it's so providential that God took us through Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and then straight to Jonah. I'm not smart enough to do this. I can see God's sovereign hand in this, but don't we see a repeat of Genesis 3 here? Like, what was the issue for Adam and Eve? They felt shame, and then they did what? They, they didn't trust each other, and they didn't trust who else? God. I mean, wasn't that what their response is? What happens if God shows up? What happens if God does what he did yesterday and shows up to do relationship with us today and he discovers that we've disobeyed him? I don't trust him, so I'm gonna do what? I'm gonna go hide. And ultimately, this is what Jonah's doing, isn't it? I don't trust God. Listen, the invitation to repentance, the call to repentance is a call to trust God, take a risk, and find out what kind of God he is. That's why I say the sailors were closer to repentance. They had tried everything they could do. They had thrown everything overboard. The only thing left is, let's find out what kind of God Jonah has. Well, what if he's a, a mean and vengeful God? We've already got that. When we're already staring death in the face, what else can happen to us? Let's take a risk. Let's find out what kind of God Jonah's God is. Let's call out to him. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps, maybe, perhaps the God, your God, will give a thought to us. What kind of thought? A kind and gracious thought so that we may not perish. Adam and Eve didn't believe that God was kind. They expected God to show up and pour out punishment and wrath, so they hid. Jonah did not believe that God was kind. So in his disobedience, what does he do? He runs and he hides. You see, he's trying to get as far away from God as he can. Like he's down in the hull of the ship as though God can't see him. Did anybody notice God, like, looking for Jonah? Hey, has anybody seen Jonah? Like, I asked him yesterday to go to Nineveh, and I can't find him. I mean, God's not wandering around like, oh, he got on a boat. What boat did he get on? I'll find him. Like, God sees him the whole way. But you can kind of see the lie of shame, can't you? Jonah's like, I'm gonna hide. God will never find me here. And I'm going to get down in the hole of the boat just in case God's like hovering over the water looking at boats. I don't want him to see me. Because ultimately he didn't believe that God was kind, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. How we respond to God in our shame reveals what we think about him. What do you run to when you feel shame? I want you to think about that. What do you run to when you feel shame in an attempt to self-medicate and get personal relief? 
before you convince yourself and others that you don't run when you feel shame, let me just call your attention to some of the things that we run to. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. One of the things I've learned about myself over the last 11 months in counseling is that what I run to is performance. I run to things that other people applaud that make me feel momentarily better about myself. Like, sometimes the shackles of shame are ugly and obvious, and everybody can see them. That person is addicted to such and such. Sometimes it's not so obvious. Like, for me, it's like working really hard because people applaud that. Feel better for a minute. I make myself feel better about myself. Being kind to somebody. Oh, look at how kind he is. Makes me feel better about myself. Here's the good news. As God has been like showing that to me and deconstructing that in my life, now I get to just be kind to people for the sake of being kind. I'm not trying to medicate any shame or hide something from anybody. I just get to serve and work and do the things God's called me to do. Here's my question for you. What do you run to to try to self-medicate, self-heal your shame? And what does that reveal to you about your view of God? Because here's here's, here's where it's at at the end of the day. If If I'm hiding from the presence of God like Jonah, I am saying something about who I believe God is, right? And what am I saying? I'm saying I don't trust God. If I show up and let him see me, right? He's gonna crush me. He's gonna kick me out. He's gonna reject me. And yet the invitation of repentance is this. Hey, come out of your hiding and just... Take a risk and see what kind of God God is. Here, come out of the shadows. Come out of the hiding. Come out of the closet. Come out of your shame and just just take the risk. Do what the sailors were doing. Let's find out what kind of God the God of the Bible actually is. How is shame attempting to write your story? How do you move away from God's presence? Maybe it's like I I quit going to church. (laughs) I quit hanging around with people who like remind me of who God is. I quit praying. I quit reading the Bible. What do you do to move away from God's presence? And what spaces or relationships do you gravitate towards where you can exist and not be fully known? Can you see where you've done that in life at any point? Like you've gravitated towards people who are hiding so that you can hide. You don't ask me, I won't ask you. And what addictive behaviors have you or are you engaging in right now that already seem impossible to get out of? Like some of you, you're experiencing that shame on top of shame thing. Like, like links of a chain. And the more you go to that thing to feel better about the shame, the more shame that gets stacked on top. And now you're convinced if anybody finds out, they'll reject you. And not just anyone, but if God actually could see me, he won't love me. 
Listen, church, that is a lie. That is a lie. Come on. Listen, Jesus has come to bring you the same sign that Jonah brought. He's calling you to repentance. He's calling you to come out of the hiding and, 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 and just, take, just see what kind of God the God of the Bible is. Just see. Find out what he's going to do when you come out in the light and you say, this is where I am. This is the mess I've made. This is where the story of the prodigal son becomes your reality. When your heavenly father looks at you and he doesn't run. He doesn't slap you. He doesn't belittle you with his words. He opens up his arms and he runs to you. That is the God of the Bible. Listen, that that same God is calling you to repentance today. And I'm inviting you, I'm encouraging you, almost begging you, find out what kind of God God is. Just see, just see what happens when you come out of the hiding, when you step into the light with him today. I want to end with Romans chapter 10, a few verses here. This is the good news of the gospel. That if we will confess with our mouth, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, rescued, not rejected, not crushed. You'll actually be saved. For with your heart one believes and is justified, and with your mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to what? Shame. Shackled in shame. Buried in shame. Does that apply to guys like Jonah? Yes. How about the pagan sailors that are just like fumbling in the dark trying to figure out who God is? Yes. What about the Ninevites who are part of a wicked and adulterous generation torturing people? Yes. Everyone. Even you who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. That's what will happen if you take a risk with God today. You'll be saved. You'll be rescued. You'll be forgiven. You'll be cleansed. You'll be adopted. You'll be brought in. You'll be invited to the table. Are you willing to take that risk today? The same risk that the sailors took? Let's just find out and see. Let's just find out and see what kind of God God is. One of my hopes, just spoiler alert, one of my hopes for us walking through the story of Jonah is that we could begin to see repentance as an act of kindness. I think that's so distorted in the church today. Like repentance is the baseball bat that the prophet uses to heap up guilt and shame on people. And God's like, no, that's an invitation from a loving father. Come see what kind of God I am. Come, come out into the light. And so will, will you take that risk today? Will you take the same risk that the pagan sailors took? Maybe when we sing in a minute, the words that we sing are going to be like a beautiful expression of what's on your heart. You just need to stand and just sing and let that be your prayer. 
No, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you need to, to talk with somebody. Would you come grab one of our prayer partners today? Ask them, hey, help me. I need to, I need to be in the light today. I need, to, I need to figure out what this repentance thing is. I, I want to find out what kind of God the God of the Bible is. Let our prayer partners pray with you. After we dismiss, um, we ask our elders to put lanyards on out in the commons just so you can identify who, who, who we are. We, we would love to have a conversation with you about anything God is wrestling with you about today, talking with you about, stirring in you today. So would you come grab one of our elders and let us talk with you, or pray with you before you leave today? But I'll leave you with this. Are you willing to take that risk and find out what kind of God the God of the Bible is today? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being kind and slow to anger and gracious and abounding in love. Father, the lie of shame distorts that in our hearts. The lie of shame tries to convince us that if we bring our sin to you, that you're just going to pour out anger. You're just going to crush us. You're going to reject us. Father, we thank you for the story of Jonah. God, if you can have grace for the people of Nineveh, surely you can have grace for us. If you can have grace for the sailors, surely you can have grace for us. If you can have grace for one like Jonah who knows you yet runs in rebellion, surely, oh God, you could have grace for us. Father, today I pray that every person here would experience the kindness of your grace. Father, thank you for calling us to repentance. Lord Jesus, I pray that now in this remaining few moments, your spirit would stir in us and move in us and convict us and draw us to you. As we stand to sing, as we kneel to pray, God, I pray you would make yourself known. Reveal yourself to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.